Um, we're continuing our, our David series, our, our David in 3D. We're looking at Dave and, uh, and all of his, and, and everything I guess God did through him, I should say. But we're looking at what it looks like to serve. This is why I say great, because serving is something that is a difficult thing to do. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that. It, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes um, sweat and tears, maybe even blood sometimes, depending on what you're doing and how you're serving. <clears throat> but I want to look at what that means. And in a bigger context, I want to see it as far as what's it mean to serve before we lead? Serving before we, we start to lead. And the first thing I want to do, I want to start with kind of a, a cultural commentary is what I'll call it. And I want to ask the question, what does it mean to become great? What does it mean to become great? When God, you know, brought me back into the fold, I, if you don't know my story, I was a, a prodigal son, knew God as a child, left him when I went off to college, and then returned here. The adventure is, is the people here is really what, what brought me back into the community and what God did through them. But when I, when I came back in the fold, the first thing I want to do, and I was so on fire, and many of you can probably, you know, be, or have a similar experience with, or to me as this, but all I wanted to do was to ne- lead the next great revival. I was just like, man, you brought me back into the fold. You're going to do something amazing. And I was on fire. And I, and I can remember sitting with, with Pastor Eric and Jody and just like downloading to them everything that I wanted to do. And of course, Eric, you know, knowing him, he was like, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. You know? And, you know, Pastor Jody, in all her wisdom, she was like, all right, let's uh, pull the reins a little bit, right? And, you know, Eric, I remember once I was at a pastor's brunch. I used to go to the pastor's uh, brunches quite a bit. Um, and I remember telling the, the group there everything I wanted to do. And, and I was sitting next to Eric, and Eric taps my hand. And he's like, yeah, he's a good boy, right? And I think that was one of the moments like, okay, thanks, you know, um, where I just was like, okay, I'm not quite ready yet, but there was, there was a great thing I had to learn as far as what it meant to become great. And, and to kind of talk more about this cultural uh, commentary, I want to talk a little bit why we, we use that word first off and what it means and where we, where we kind of got that from. Because our intentions can be great. You know, we, we want to be great, but we need to understand what it means to be great. And our Western culture has really influenced us on, it's something about our own actions. It's something that, uh, that mankind does off of their own works, right? We're always kind of, we've been told that it's always by, by what we do. And this really starts going back all the way to the, the ancient Greeks. They had a, a term called arete. Can you say that with me? Arete. And this means excellence of any kind. This was something that was that was deep woven inside the Western culture was arete. Going, it was basically given to, to bravery, um, connotated with effectiveness. So this is the, the people who created the Olympic Games, as you can imagine. These are people who were very, very warlike. I mean, they had guys like Alexander the Great. He was great because of his conquerings. Right? He was, you were always supposed to be excellent in every way and at every kind. There was this, this continuous desire to be great at everything you did. Arete. 
It was always based off of achievements of, of man in knowledge, warfare, physical appearance even, they looked at. And of course, again, Olympic game winners were, were always held to such high regard. Does that sound a little bit familiar? Sports and athlete, athletes held to, to high standards, excellence of every kind, very, very pertinent to our culture. Our culture is definitely imprinted from that. And then we go to the Romans, a, t- a culture that was also imprinted from the Greeks. And they had a, a term called veritas, or veritas, if you speak English. We don't say the V's in Latin, veritas. <clears throat> but this is righteousness to the, to the Roman or the truth. So there was this pursuit of, of righteousness and truth to a Roman. But to them, it was always devotion to the state. We had to have devotion to the state. You were made right in how you served the state. Can you imagine that? how you serve the state. What did you do for the republic? What did you do for the emperor? They all held him to high regard. That was your righteousness. The truth was, was in your performance for the state, the veritas. And that was their continuous struggle and fight was, does this man have veritas? What kind of veritas did this man have or woman? It was based on a moral character and devotion to the state. It was their religion, you could say. A Roman's religion was, was the state that they lived in. Caesar was great because of his veritas. You also hear, hear it said that he conquered France, Gaul, what they call it. And he was known to have killed over a million Gauls. And those were, that was his veritas. That was what he was made great. His, his truth and righteousness was done by, by what he had accomplished in Gaul. So why am I sharing this with you? Why am I, why am I starting this sermon off with this Greek and, and Latin influences our Western culture on what it means to be great? Because both of these cultures have defined what we receive as great. What we define great based is built off of these two cultures. And it's based off one, human achievements. And when I talk about serving, I want to make sure that I'm clear that the Bible in God's word, and the way Jesus has, has designed and created this world is contradictory to everything that we understand. Our culture is built on the same foundation, so we're hardwired that way. We want to do things our own way. We want to do things based off of our achievements. We want to be great because of something that we have accomplished. We want to be the top of our businesses. We want to be the best in athletic competition, whatever that looks like in your own life. Our culture teaches that we are told to find our identities in our arete, in our veritas. Again, you look at sports athletes. I was a, an athlete in college at, at the top level. I ran against guys like Robert Griffin III. I don't know if you guys, RG3 to the layman. And I'll tell you now, my identity was very much built up in how well I performed how well I ran that race. It didn't matter how well I ran the week before. It was always about what am I doing now? How well am I racing now? And my, my value came from my performance and, and, and how great I could become through hard work of labor and, and how hard I was able to, to push myself and, and how much more weight I could lift on during the week and, and how much faster I could run around a circle. That defined my greatness. And it was shallow and it was hollow. And if you ask any, any famous person, they'll probably tell you that there's nothing there. 
And I want to tell you now, and, and, the, and really, the, we'll go into the key verse here in a minute, but God has something bigger and better for you. He has something bigger and better for you. Rather than seeking a life of pursuing your own great achievements, like sports, business, hobbies, talents, things that you want in a way that, that is self-seeking, he wants, you to, to, he wants to make you great by first teaching you how to serve so you can unleash the power he gave you in leading godly movements. You see the difference? Serving, in the way that we're going to look at it, is dependent upon God making you great, not by your own self-achievements. And then by that, he will unleash the greatness that he is through you. And how do we do that? We serve. It was through serving and submitting that I, I still don't feel prepared for what I do, but he began to prepare me for what was ahead of me. Jody had a great way of saying it when, when she was explaining it. You had a lot of zeal, but you didn't have a lot of wisdom. And I was like, yep, that's true. So what I want to touch on a little bit today is what is God doing in your life right now? How could you be serving God right now that is going to prepare you for the things he has for you in the future? Because right now is what we can work with. We don't know what tomorrow is. God doesn't promise us tomorrow. So how do we prepare right now for what God has for us tomorrow and in the future? Using what God did through King David, we will see how we can serve before we lead. A lot of you know that I'm a, I'm a recruiter uh, bivocationally for Wayfair. Don't call me for discounts. I'm, I'll probably still do them. But one of the, one of the most interesting things that I, I run up against with recruiting people is everyone is always looking for the, the job that's two steps ahead of where they are right now. Everybody wants this job, but they don't want to go through the two jobs it takes to get to that job. College grads are the worst. Those guys are entitled. I'm, just kidding. I'm one of those. I can say that. So we need to look at what God is doing now. How can we serve now? Because a lot of us are looking two steps down the road and say, this is where we should be. But God is saying, what do I have for you now that's going to get you to those two steps? He's sparing you from a lot of hurt and a lot of pain by making you go through things now that's only going to build you up and equip you for tomorrow. And let's look, let's look at that and see how how King David handled that. And look how that truth is found in the life of King David, shall we? Before we jump into the key, the key passage, though, let's, let's pray. Father, we just want to serve you. Lord, we want truth. Lord, we're tired of all of the, the false 
truths that tr- or falseness that comes into our lives from different avenues that says that we can be great through, through, through hollow and shallow means. Lord, we want to be great because of what you've done. We want to lead great revivals and great movements because of what you've done through us. Show us what it means to serve. Speak to our hearts. Convict us. Expose some of the things that we hold on to that are not real so that we can cling to those things that are real. Lord, ignite a fire in our hearts that wants to serve you in a capacity that you desire, in a way that you have preordained. Lord, let the Adventure Church be a church that is known for its servant heart. That you may raise up leaders as you have in the past, that you will again in the future, who who understand what it means to submit and to serve. Lord, just use this message. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn or tap to 1 Samuel 16. That was for the digital people out there. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23 is what we're going to be reading today and, and digesting. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 23. I don't know if you guys remember this. This is a paper Bible. That's what I will use today. Let me read it for you here. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem. Who knows how to play the lyre? He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who was with, who was with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor-bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit of God came on David, or came on, came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. All right. I think the first thing I need to address is the theological issue. Because the first verse, Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. That should make you pause for just a second. Because I'm sure most of you are trying to digest what that verse says. You may have not even heard the last, you know, six or seven verses. You're probably thinking, okay, that's different. What does that mean? I know I did. Which is why I started to start this one. So what does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and evil spirit from the Lord tormented him? Let's just get this out of the way. The context of this passage is Saul's disobedience in chapter 15. So one chapter before this, Saul is disobedient to God. He is told, you need to go and take out these Amalekites, these Canaanite tribe. And he doesn't, he doesn't do it the way that God has commanded him to do. So in this way, God rejects him. 
He re- he's like, I regret, actually, he actually says, I regret making Saul king over my people. So here we have this rejected king who is now being, being tormented, and we'll look more what that looks like. The Spirit of the Lord or the Holy Spirit at this time as well was selective and temporary in the Old Testament. It was selective and temporary, just as active, but selective and temporary. It allowed for supernatural abilities and successes. So God would would give his spirit to certain people for certain purposes. We see this, uh, one example is Exodus 31, 2 through 3, when they're developing the tabernacle. It says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. So in this example of the Old Testament, the Spirit of God descends upon Bezalel so that he can be a a craftsman and a worksman in the tabernacle. We also see it in Judges when God empowers Samson in chapter 13 with supernatural strength, but then takes it from him in chapter 16 because he has to humble him. So it's a selective and temporary thing at this point in time. So again, just as active, but God has the ability to take and remove. And this brings us to kind of the theological issue is many of you might be thinking, Does, is God doing that still? Can I lose the Holy Spirit? And to that I say, no. God doesn't remove the Holy Spirit from a believer today. This is the beauty of living when we live. Because Romans 8, 9 says, you, this is the believer in Christ, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So what he's saying there is like when you become saved, when when God rescues you, he puts his Spirit in you. He seals you. Done. He doesn't remove that. That means you would have to lose your salvation, which the Bible clearly states is not true. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 is another one. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Again, sealed, locked, and delivered. John fourteen six. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, an advocate. This is another word for the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever. So we're living in, in the New Covenant times, the New Testament times of, of, of a perpetual connection to God through the Holy Spirit. Whereas the Old Testament, it was selective and temporary. Now imagine serving somebody who was tormented by an evil spirit. And now God didn't just say, now God's not evil, right? He didn't say like, you know, this is the spirit of me going into and, and tormenting him. We know from passages like Job, and this one is an example that God permits these types of things to happen. Satan has to ask permission at times. Say, can I go after this guy? That shows the sovereignty of God that even evil has to go, am I good? Because <laughs> God's spirit is not evil, but it is sovereign. Saul had disobeyed God, thus this was a, a judgment that was being made against him. And it was used for a purpose. Even evil is used for a purpose by God. I went through five years of prodigal doubt, sin, debauchery, you name it. 
God used all of that in a full circle. Because now I can share that with you. And I can share with many people that God can restore and heal. It's for a purpose. 1 Peter 5.8, this talks a little bit about what the enemy is always doing because he doesn't always have to ask for, for, he doesn't always ask God for permission. God has to permit, but he doesn't always have to ask. Does that make sense? Because it says in 1 Peter 5.8 that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking everyone to, who, to devour. So he's looking for little chinks in your armor. He's looking for little holes in your, in your defense. It says to Job that he was, he was protected with a hedge. And the devil couldn't even come against it. So when God said, I'm going to remove a little bit of that hedge, it was like open season. You got to build the hedge. You got to have a hedge. As believers today, we, we do have a hedge, which is a beautiful thing. It's protection. And again, Satan doesn't always have to ask permission to attack. He will attack any way he can. Sometimes he has to get special permission. But again, he's always looking for weaknesses. And this is what we're seeing is, is Saul had a, a, a defiant disobedience weakness that the enemy was able to take advantage of. And imagine serving a guy who was always sor- sorrowful, who was probably full of shame and guilt. He knew exactly what he did. He was accused and distraught. He was troubled and terrified. He was irritable and vindictive. Those are all what that word torment has connotations with. Imagine serving that guy. So through all of this, however, we're going to see how God still blesses the tormented man by sending a servant for a purpose. And we know in Romans 8.28, or Romans 8.28, no, I said, sure I said it that way. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I love the fact that the enemy himself cannot do anything apart from him from what God has preordained. That it's not, it's not a one-on-one clash like many people will say. It's over. This guy is like the perpetual loser. Imagine playing a game where every game you lost. That's him. Because everything works good for those who love him. We've already become victorious if you believe in Jesus. So I feel like that was the, I had to, I had to touch on that because that's important. Right? One, it gives us an idea of, of who we're serving, but also there's a, I could see that being really misinterpreted as, as something that's not right about God. So now we have that clear. Let's point, go to point two. Serve now as if you're working for the Lord. Serve now as if you're, as if you're working for the Lord. Colossians 3.23. This should be like all on your desktops at work. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. I think too often we get caught up trying to serve human masters. That's called people-pleasing and something that God had to boot out of me real quick when he sent me into ministry. We do not serve human masters, but we work and serve a God who loves us, who provided for us, who saved us. So we need to work that way. If you look at verses 15 through 20, let's review that. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. 
He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of these servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent his messengers to Jesse and, and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent him with his, sons, or with his son David to Saul. Now, I should say a lyre is like a harp. So he's really good at the harp. It's like a personal harp. Now, there are really two options when you come to, to serve. One is you can use what God has given you now. What season are you in? Are, are you using that for serving purposes? Or are you complaining about what season you're in right now and deciding not to serve because there's something going on? There's really the two options. Serving is either you're, you're going for it despite the seasons and using those things around you to help serve, or you're complaining about it. I'm guilty of both. So again, all of my sermons, I'm preaching to myself, okay? Pretend you're not even here. God doesn't say to complain about what he has for you right now. He says, take advantage of the time that you have right now. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. Take advantage of the time that you have right now. Not, in this, not complaining about the season you're in right now. What is God teaching you now that's going to prepare you for the future? A part of being a servant leader is that you're intentional about what God has for you. You're aware of what the things you're going through now might prepare you for the next group. You might even be preparing the next generation. It may not even be what God's going to do through you now, but what God has, is, is going to do through you now that's going to actually take effect in the next generation. Boy, that was a hard lesson for me to learn. I, I told the, the Gospel of John class on Wednesday, one of the biggest things that I had to learn in being sent to American Fork was, Maybe I'm not there to see the revival. Maybe I'm there to prepare the foundations for the revival. God had to really like, break my heart and say, if nobody came to church, or if I didn't save a single person, would you still follow me? But you invested in these 15 people I have. Would you still follow me? And I had to say, yes, me who was so on fire thinking that the entire county was going to get saved in one year. I was like, this is going to happen, I believe. But I realized there was false motive. There was motive because I was like, oh, I want to see that. I want to be a part of that. He's like, yeah. Well, are you okay with it being Luke's generation that sees it? My son's generation that sees it? Or, are you, or does it have to be you? I had to be okay with what God had for me right now to prepare for me, prepare for his kingdom in the future. You never know how God is going to use the things you, you, you do now to work again in the next generation. We are a continuation of thousands, if not millions of believers that have led us to this. Did you ever think about that? That we are part of a continuous line of disciples. Man, I could tell you a lot of stories about some of the, the difficult things. I mean, I worked in retail for two years. Who's worked in retail before? 
it's hard to love people when you work in retail. Like, I was like, I mean, I'm really trying to love people, God. This is really difficult to do. But I learned how to work with difficult people. Pastor, and you have to work with difficult people sometimes. I, gotta, I spend my day working with unbelievers. And then I'm a recruiter. I'm learning how to lead and make tough decisions that, that have huge impacts. You think God's using that to prepare me for future things? Of course he is. But you don't necessarily look at that and go, well, I'm getting prepared for ministry while I work in retail. Or I'm getting prepared for ministry while I have to work with my boss, who's very difficult to work with. Boy, it was working the, the connection teams here on Sunday. It was the things that God did through me through preteens. Oh, if you can explain the gospel to a preteen, you can explain it to anybody. If you can get a preteen to listen to you, I explain the gospel. That's what I should say. If you can make that sound like, oh, yeah, I want that to a preteen, an adult will eat it up. And then David had a reputation. He was expert at playing the lyre. He was, he was an expert musician. He was known to be brave. He demonstrated it. He was a warrior. He must have demonstrated it. He was a good communicator. He presented himself well in public. He had a, he had a reputation. That even the king's men were like, man, this is a guy in Bethlehem who's really, really good at everything he does. He's got some favor because at the very end it says, and the Lord is with him. Does your life reflect that? Does your, does your serving reflect that the Lord is with him? Do people look at you and go, how, how does he accomplish that? How did that work? And you go, I don't, I don't know. Many times that God's done something at work, I'm like, I don't, I don't know how that happened either. It gives you the opportunity to go, I follow a big God. Do people see the way you do things and wonder how, you could, how they can do them or how you do them? I say, pray that God will show you favor at work, school, wherever that is. Make people wonder what you have that they don't have. Boy, one of the best things he's ever done for me, he's given me a very peaceful heart when it comes in times of, of, of great difficulty. When things are really scary and trialing and difficult, God has given me a gift to, just to be calm and to just be optimistic about things. If you talk to anybody on my team, they'll say, they, that's what they wonder about me is, how are you so calm? Because I know, I mean, Wayfair is temporary. My job, it could be gone tomorrow. I have a bigger purpose, a greater purpose in serving so when things don't go well, we give you, he gives you peace. God prepared David while serving in the fields as a shepherd. Again, no one wants to follow a leader who hasn't fought the battles that, that this life contains. One thing I, sure, I shared with uh, American Fork last week that I want to share with you guys. I want to give you a little bit of what David was prepared with. What it means when, when David was going with shepherding and he was in the, in the fields, this is what it meant. Your servant, this is David speaking, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion, a bear, came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. When it says that he was shepherding his flock, he was 
doing battle. He was preparing. And I don't want to go into battle with somebody who has never fought before. I am very clear with my Utah County team. I say, don't come here if you're not ready for a fight. Because we got to fight lions and bears. And we have to be prepared to go after them. What lion and bear are you fighting now that God is going to use in the future? You fight lions and bears through serving, everybody. You fight your lions and bears because you have to serve tormented people. Chapter 16, the the verses prior to that, talks about this great anointing of, of David. And as we are the anointed in Jesus Christ, we find a way to serve and prepare for the leading in the future. We have a great power that lives inside of us. We must be prepared to unleash it. Because as Christians, we are leaders. But we got to look at what that means. And that goes into the third point. Understand that God uses serving for future purposes. Understand that God uses serving for future purposes. He wants to get, he wants, he doesn't want you complacent. Let's say that. Complacency is the killer of a Christian church. He, he has plans. He, we know he does for you. David served Saul, who was, a torment, who was tormented by an evil spirit, but he served him powerfully and didn't even realize it. He not only used David to bless Saul with relief from this tormented spirit, but he gave him favor in the eyes of Saul. So not only is it that God didn't abandon Saul, he gave him David. He said, this person is going to bring relief and comfort when he plays this, this tune. So for Saul, it became, David became like, oh, I can never lose this guy. I'm, I'm relaxed, I'm calm, I'm not tormented when I'm with him. He brought David into the very inner circle of Saul. David learned how to be a king because he was always with Saul. Imagine being at the right hand of the king. You learn everything there is to know about running a kingdom. So there was divine purpose in his serving of Saul. What does it mean to be great? I'll tell you now, the answer is the son of David. The answer is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says in Matthew 20, 26-27, Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. Jesus is saying, if you want to be a leader, you must act as a slave. How do you learn to do that? You learn by submitting and serving. I grew and matured the most in leading by putting people around me who could tell me no. Who I could submit to. Who I could serve and love. Throughout my life, I've met powerful people of God who struggled because they couldn't comprehend this fact. They couldn't comprehend the power that comes from serving and submitting to each other. Submitting to a leader, serving to a leader. I'm not saying this as a leader. I'm telling you, this is a, there's a truth to this. Please hear me out. That if you want to lead, you must first serve. 
If you want to lead, you must understand the, comp- the, the ramifications of that. You're almost, you have to lead like a slave. You learn to do that by serving and submitting. The very words of Jesus. The lesson doesn't start when you become a leader. It doesn't, doesn't start, oh, well, I just got to get to that step. I got to get that two step ahead and then I'll understand. No, you, you learn to be a leader when you first decide you're going to serve instead of always being served. I love how Chase said that, that we did not plan that. That was, that was God. God has made you great because he has made you servants. He has made you like him. Jesus was great because of who he was. What he did is what he served. He served his disciples. He served his communities. He healed people that didn't know his name. He, tucked, he, he told truth to people who rejected him. We are called to do the same thing because that is what is great. We talked about veritas, or sorry, we talked about arete. The believer is arete because in 1 Peter 2, 4, it says, so as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight. We are not great because we are accepted by man. We are great because God looks at us and says, that's precious. That is what makes us great. That's our arete. That's our excellence in every way is what God has done and says, look at who you are and what I've made you become. I've put my spirit in you. You are arete. He makes us veritas. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is our veritas. That is our identities. That is our truth. That is our righteousness. Again, not by the equipping of man, not by the devotion to a particular state, a thing, an idol, whatever it is. Our devotion is to Jesus. We are made right. We are made true because of our devotion to Jesus by our faith in Jesus. You imagine the, the centuries and the thousands of years where man was seeking arete and veritas, and we have it. They, it was built inside of them to say, there is this thing, there's this hole, and they couldn't find it. We live in a time where we can understand excellence in a way they never will. We'll understand righteousness and truth in a way they never could. Because we can know Jesus Christ. Neither of these are men-based, nor by our own doing. There's no reason, there's no, I don't, that's why it's no problem for me to think that our culture developed humanism. It was our culture that defied that said human is the basis of everything. When humanity is at the center of everything we do, we're wrong, we're off. Or fall. There's, there's a shallowness to it. 
our serving and our devotion makes us great because of whom we serve. In whom we serve. Not man, but God. So as I wrap up, why do you serve? Do you serve to be served? Or do you serve because there was a God who came to earth as a man and served so devotedly because he loved his people so much that he, div- he served all the way to the cross. I almost pointed over there. To the cross. We must serve in, in a way that is similar. Be so devoted to each other, to the body of Christ, the very temple of God is what the Bible says, that we love, we cherish, and we devote ourselves to each other, to God. We love God and we love people. You can't love people without first loving God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, will change the way you understand serving. The deeper you understand the ramifications of what Jesus did on the cross, that he was completely innocent. He never sinned, but he willingly, and as with a servant heart, took the very brunt of every little ounce of sin that we could ever produce, and he wiped it all off on the face of the planet by one action. And then he rose on the third day because he is not a God of the dead. He is a God of the living. And you haven't lived until you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You may think you have, but you haven't. You may think I've experienced all there is to experience, but you haven't unless you've experienced being alive in Jesus Christ. So as I wrap up, I want to, I want to, can we all bow our heads? I want to give two challenges. The first is to the person who has never responded to the message of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ demands response. If you have never accepted Christ as your Lord, I want you to give you an opportunity to do so right now. If that's you, I want you to just raise your hand. Acknowledge who he is. Respond to the gospel. Turn from your old ways. Challenge two is for everyone else who is a believer. How are you going to serve? Are you going to serve in order to get served? Are you going to serve so devotedly without holding anything back? Each other, your coworkers, this body. There are a thousand ways to serve. Just at the adventure, seems like. Get involved. Find a place to serve and get fight the battles, the lions and the bears that are before you. You won't do that apart from serving. You'll live a complacent and easy life. I don't want an easy and complacent life. I want a life full of fight.
to be prepared for what God has for me in the future. If that's you, if you want that, will you please stand with me? If you want want a complacent and easy life, if you're ready to fight the battles, the lions and the bears, will you stand? American Fork, you too. Amen. Look around. We are not alone. We do not serve as rogue Christians. We are an army developed by God himself to fight lions and bears. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what you are doing through this body. Thank you that we do not come with just words, but we come with power. Power that you have sealed us with. Power that you have given us to make an impact. Power to go into the fights that we have to go through when we serve. The enemy will come after us, but he will continuously be pushed back. That he will come crawling back because of what you've done, that you are victorious. We raise you up, Lord. You are our king, our master, our leader. It is you who we lift up. It is you who we glorify. You, your word is our sword, is our sword, God. We fight with what you have said about us. We fight with what you have done in our past. All of that is put aside. Our past is behind us. Our future is now. Prepare us now for what you have for us, Lord. Give our hearts the boldness that it needs. Give us the courage that we need to go serve our communities, to serve each other, that we may be raised up as leaders in whichever capacity you see fit. Lord, I know that you are making pastors You're making apostles. You're making people who can make profound impacts in your kingdom, God. Continue to raise us up as we lift you up, God. Thank you for the cross and what you did, that you served us so willingly and devotedly unto death. But you didn't stay dead, that you rose on the third day so that we could serve you, the living God. In your glorious name, the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. All right, let's give God a round of applause. Yeah. Have a great week. Go serve. Go fight your lions and your bears.